Well, greetings in Jesus' name to everyone that's gathered here this morning. May grace, mercy, and peace be multiplied to you all. Colossians 1.13 tells us, uh, speaking of Jesus, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. And I trust I'm speaking to those of you who have been translated into the kingdom of his dear Son. This morning I'd like to speak about the kingdom. That's uh, going to be our topic this morning. But I'm not particularly going to uh, give you an exhortation to enter into the kingdom. And I'm not even particularly going to spend a lot of time defining what that kingdom is, although that will enter in, but... My focus this morning is to help us understand a very foundational aspect of what the kingdom means in terms of the kingdom now or the kingdom future. And that is my title, The Kingdom Now and the Kingdom Future. Now, in recent years, it seems there has been more and more talk about the kingdom. And I suppose in some regards that is good. There has been a lot of emphasis placed on the two kingdoms and having a proper concept that there are two kingdoms, the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. And that these two kingdoms are in conflict to each other and we must choose which kingdom we will be a part of. That is all true and good. But again, that's not particularly my focus this morning. As we consider all the scriptures regarding the kingdom we find that there are some of the scriptures that seem to clearly speak about a kingdom now. It's here. It's present. And there are others that seem to very clearly speak about a kingdom future. And yet both of them are referred to as the kingdom of God, or sometimes it's spoken of as the kingdom of heaven. And I believe those two terms are mostly synonymous. They do have a little different aspect to them. Uh, but I know of some current teachers who would try to make a sharp divide between the term kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. I don't think the scriptures bear that out, but rather in many cases they're used interchangeably. But it is very important for us to understand that the scriptures speak of both, a kingdom now and a kingdom future, and that we do not confuse the two and the differences that there are. There are similarities and there are also differences. If we go back in the history of the Anabaptists, you will find that in the 1530s there was a group of Anabaptists that gathered in the town of Munster. And the history of that case gave a, a very negative um, picture of the Anabaptist movement. This would have been about oh, a little over 10 years into the uh, birth of the Anabaptists. Anabaptists were those who rebaptized. Well, there was this group that was rebaptized and professed to be a part of, of the, uh, the kingdom of God, but they had the view that the kingdom of God should be now. It's here. And so in the city of Munster, they attempted to establish the kingdom. 
they took up arms, whereas most of those who professed Anabaptist beliefs did not uh, take up arms. In fact, they took seriously the words of Christ and the admonitions in Scripture and would not resist. They would not take up arms even to the point of giving their life. But these citizens in Munster, and there was at least two principal men who were leading out, and they professed to have understandings and revelations from God, but they wanted to establish God's kingdom here. They established a new Zion. They believed that the kingdom of God was at hand. They even claimed special revelations and began to teach the people and one of the things they, they claimed to have some revelation on was that God was uh, teaching them that polygamy was okay and that it should be uh, received by all of God's people here in this city. I think prior to that point they had also decided that anybody who was not an Anabaptist needed to be expelled from the city. And so they banished them out of the city because this is supposed to be a holy city. Well, at least that was perhaps one step better than some of the reformers who insisted on killing those who were uh, not among the faithful, as they called it. But still, that was not the heart of God for a church, God's kingdom here on the earth, to... Um, banish out of a city and of course the error was they were trying to establish a, a human government, a city that they said represented the kingdom of God. Well they got this revelation about polygamy and began to teach that and it was not well received by most and there was a lot of stir and contention but they persisted and and actually took multiple wives to themselves, especially the leaders did. I don't think all the people quite went along with that, that whole idea, but that was what they were trying to establish. And eventually, the, um, the powers of the nation came against this city, and they overthrew the city and captured about, I think it was over 300, and then proceeded to put them all to death. And that event was very, um, a very remarkable event in the history of the Anabaptists. And it was actually one of the things that led Menno Simons to his conversion because his own brother was a part of this city and perished with the 300 in that calamity. Now, most of the other Anabaptists refused to be associated with this idea and this concept, even though they shared in some regards a, a like view of baptism, a believer's baptism, yet they wanted nothing to do with the, uh, the heresy at Munster and the calamity that came upon them there. But it was a misunderstanding of what God's kingdom really is and that there is a difference between God's kingdom now and a kingdom future. And of course there are many other things that played into that. What we're looking at this morning uh, is not the only issue there at Munster, but it was a significant part of why they went the direction they did. Now, I don't really fear that any of you will join yourselves to an armed insurrection and establish a city somewhere nearby that you would call the city of God. But there are voices and, and teachings around that may catch us unawares if we're not well grounded in this matter of the difference between God's kingdom now and the kingdom future. Let's look at a few scriptures that would 
I don't know. Before we look at that, I'd like to consider the situation when Christ came. He came at a time when Israel was in subjection to the Romans. And yet, God's people, the children of Israel here, the ones through whom Christ came, would have believed themselves to be the people of God and they would have understood that God wanted a kingdom. That was not uh, strange to them. In fact, they expected that God's kingdom would come. There had been promises made to the fathers, to Abraham and to David and through all the prophets, that God would uh, restore the kingdom. And most of them would have understood this these promises to be a literal and visible kingdom. And we know how that when Christ came, they, even those who believed in him as the Messiah thought that now the kingdom would be established. But Jesus gave some very clear teachings. And while he was establishing a kingdom, and he did say that the kingdom is come, there was also yet a future sense. Now, I'd like for you to turn with me to some Old Testament passages, or one in particular in Daniel chapter 7. And verse 13. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, and this is in the vision that Daniel had. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Well, then we go down a few verses to verse 18. It says, But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. And then further down in verse 21, And I beheld... And the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. So this would have been part of the understanding of the, the God's people, the children of Israel, that... There is coming a time when there will be a king and he will reign and establish a kingdom and it will last forever. And the saints of the Most High will take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So it was no surprise when Jesus came and they actually began to believe, some did, that this was the Messiah. This was the promised one. Well, all these promises would have be started going through their mind. Okay, he's going to establish a kingdom. And it's a kingdom that's going to last forever. Now further, and I'll just mention some of these verses. You don't need to turn to all of them. But in Luke chapter 1, verse 31 and 33, we have the angel who came to Mary and gave the promise and this is what the angel said, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now that was, this is it. This is the fulfillment of the promises. He's going to sit on the throne of David. He's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. 
And of his kingdom there shall be no end. But what about all those scriptures? And we know that when Jesus then lived on the earth and he died, he rose again and went up to heaven, where's the kingdom? Now we're going to look at some of the scriptures that speak to that. But what I'm establishing here at the beginning is that when Jesus came to the earth among his people and he began to preach, and this is how he started his ministry from that time, Matthew 4, 17, that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that expression, is at hand, is clearly meant to teach them that it's here, it's now. Here, the kingdom of heaven has come. In verse 23 of that same chapter, and Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. So the kingdom was here. He came and began to teach them and, and to preach the gospel of the kingdom. In his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10 and through 13, where he gives what we call the Lord's Prayer. And in that he prayed and taught his disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come. As we pray to the Father, we pray, Thy kingdom come. And in German, it has the word Reich, which would mean a reign or a rule, that which a, um, a sovereign has a reign. And so it's not, just, uh, it's not just an entity over here on the side, but it's when Christ has his reign. And then further toward the end of the prayer, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So what does that mean? Thy kingdom come. Is that now? When we pray that, is, are we praying that his kingdom be here? Or are we praying about some future time? Well, I think it's both because there are two aspects. There is a kingdom now and a kingdom future. And it's not wrong to pray for God's kingdom to come uh, now in, in, the, uh, in the spirit of being translated into that kingdom. God's will is that all should come into his kingdom. And we know that all power is given unto heaven, uh, given unto Christ in heaven and in earth. Even now, He's given that power. But we also know that we do not yet see all things subdued under Him. <coughs> Further in that uh, sermon there, Matthew six thirty three. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So that's now, that's here. We pursue the things of the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 13, we have a number of parables. And Jesus explained to his disciples, he said to his disciples, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. And so he was speaking in parables, and many of the parables would begin with, uh, for the kingdom of heaven is like unto. And then he would give his parable. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto. So it wasn't just a future uh, future time, but it, he was speaking about how things are now. But they are in this way in regard to God's kingdom. We don't have time to go into those, uh, all those parables, but 
In Matthew 16, verse 28, there's uh, a passage that's a bit difficult to understand, but it's referring to the kingdom. And Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And I'm not going to dwell on that a lot, but that certainly sounds like it's right here, you know, just at the door. Now I'd like to turn, have you turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 and in verse 21 we have fear the mother of Zebedee coming and asking this and he said unto her what wilt thou she said and saith unto him grant that these my two sons may sit the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. Now clearly she's thinking of a future time. But she's thinking of him as the king, and they are now his disciples, so there's a connection here, and, and she's thinking of a future time. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, We are able. And he assured them uh, that... Uh, Saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. Now we just note there that he didn't deny that there was a time that he would be sitting on a throne, and there would be some on the right and, and, um, and some on the left. But he simply said, it's for those for whom it is prepared. And verse 24, when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister." And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, several things I'll just note here before we go on. Jesus used the word dominion here, but it was not in a good sense. He said, you know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them. And they are great exercise authority, but it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. Now, the reason I mention that is that you may have heard, probably have and possibly will in the future, people using that term dominion. In fact... Uh, we, we use the expression dominion theology because there are those who believe that as Christians our mandate is to exercise dominion over the earth. And I'll explain a bit more about that later, but just note that here Jesus specifically talks about dominion in a negative sense saying that's how the Gentiles do, but it's not to be so among you. And I think that's very significant because there is a time when the saints will possess the kingdom, but it's not now in that sense. Now we are as ministers, 
as servants. Just like Christ came as a king, but he didn't take dominion. He came as a servant. And he lived his whole life as a servant. And he was made subject to men. And he endured the death of the cross. And then he was resurrected. And then he ascended up into heaven. But in his whole life, he did not come to take dominion. He came to give his life a ransom for many. And even so, we live today after the example of our master. We live not in the sense that we're here to take dominion over the earth, but as servants. And those who minister. We're not here to sit on thrones and have others minister to us. If we refer back to the prophecy in Daniel, I think I didn't read all of the verses that came prior, but it talks about when the Son of Man comes and will have thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands of angels ministering unto him. Then is when he sits on his throne and others minister to him. But that wasn't how he came and gave his life here. The kingdom now is servanthood. The kingdom future, we will reign. Let's turn now to Luke chapter 17. And verse 20. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here, or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And that term, is within you, uh, there's a variant reading in my center column that says, Among you. The kingdom of God is among you. And that would parallel with his teaching as he came and began his ministry saying, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So it's, it's here. And the kingdom of God cometh not with observation, meaning there's not going to be a visual as men would say, well, over there in that city is the kingdom of God. And you want to see what it's like? Go over there. Well, that, that is God's kingdom. Well, that's not how it is at present. And in this age, the kingdom of God doesn't come with observation like that. That was the error that they made at Munster there in the in the 1530s, they thought that they could establish a visible kingdom. But that wasn't what Jesus was intending to set up. The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Well, just several other passages that speak about the kingdom now. We have, of course, John 3 verse 5, where Jesus explained to Nicodemus, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That's talking about the new birth. And we believe, and you have heard, that that is for now. We are to be born again now, that we may enter into the kingdom. And when we are born again, we are part of the kingdom of God. We enter into the kingdom. And that's when God translates us from the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear Son. 
which we have there in Colossians 1.13. So there's no doubt that there is an aspect of the kingdom now. We need to enter in. We need to be part of that kingdom. And we need to live as citizens of that kingdom and understand that in this kingdom we have a king, which is Christ. But at present he is seated in the heavenlies. He is not here visibly in the sense that he's taking dominion over the earth. That is yet future. Now let's look at several passages that uh, clearly speak about a future kingdom. And you can turn here to uh, just back a few pages to Luke chapter 13. In verse 28 and following, it says, There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. Now, that is clearly speaking about a future time. The time when the kingdom of God would appear. And speaking of judgment, the saints of the past, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you will see them in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. And in another passage similar to this, Jesus actually used the term that the kingdom or the children of the kingdom would be thrust out. Now that's interesting that he uses that term. But you need to understand that in his day and the people to whom he was speaking, they would have understood themselves to be in the kingdom. And that's why he used the term children of the kingdom because they were descendants of the ones to whom the promise was given to the, the fathers. And then he said, you will see Isaac and Jacob and those seated in the kingdom and you yourselves thrust out. And in his Sermon on the Mount, he also told the people that except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and of the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom. And so he's making it clear that there are requirements for entering the kingdom. And, it's, and while he didn't thoroughly explain it here, it had more to do than just a blood lineage more than just a separate people of a certain nation. But the way would be open for the Gentiles to also be grafted into that kingdom. Now let's turn over to, well, let me refer to several passages. Mark fourteen twenty five. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This was Jesus at the Last Supper when they were taking of the cup. He says he won't drink until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Speaking of a future. 2 Timothy 4.1 I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. So that also puts it in the future, a time when there will be his appearing and his kingdom. Now let's go to Luke chapter 19 and verse 11. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. 
So this parable was in response to the fact that they thought that the kingdom would immediately appear. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. And you are familiar, I'm sure, with the rest of that. But we'll stop there and just consider that the context in which he said this, and then he gives this parable about the nobleman that goes to a far country, and he's receiving for himself a kingdom, and then he will return. But in the meantime, he had given these things to his servants and told them to occupy till he comes. And that really is the picture that Christ wants us to have, that from the time that he ascended back into heaven and is preparing himself a kingdom, as it were, like this nobleman who went uh, into a far country, so Christ has gone into heaven and he will come. And there will be a time when he will establish his physical kingdom. But in the meantime, all of his servants should occupy in their respective duties until he come. So, that's where we are today. Yes, we are in the kingdom. We have been translated into his kingdom, but we are also awaiting the time when he will return in his kingdom. And for now, we are to occupy till he comes. Now let's look at another passage in John chapter 18. And we have looked at a number of scriptures that tell us about God's kingdom now. We have looked at a number of scriptures that talk about his kingdom future. And now we're going to talk a bit more about how to understand these two in relation to each other and what parts are, are now and what parts are future. And let's look here in John chapter 18. And verse 36. Well, to get the context, let's back up to 33. Jesus before Pilate. Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered him, I a Jew. Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Now there's a number of interesting things in this passage. But Jesus here very clearly states that his kingdom is not of this world. Now he doesn't deny that he has a kingdom. And he doesn't deny but actually affirms the future tense where he says, but now is my kingdom not from hence, implying that there is a future time when his kingdom will be here. But the significance here is that there is a difference between God's kingdom and the kingdoms of this world. And there we have the two kingdoms in, in contrast. 
But it also tells us that God's kingdom, though it's now and here, it's not after or like unto the kingdoms of this world. It is of a very different sort. And it's not of the sort that we think of as taking dominion or having power and authority over uh, peoples and, and, and territories. But it is a kingdom that is within it's in the heart of man. And yes, we operate according to the rules of the kingdom. But not all the promises concerning the kingdom are to be applied to us today. Dominion being one of them. Jesus said, if my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. But now is my kingdom not from hence. So we take from that that this kingdom of God is not one of physical power and authority and we don't take up the sword. We are non-resistant. We don't fight after the kingdoms of this world. Now let's turn uh, over to, well, or back to Luke chapter 22. And verse 29. Now the context here is that there was this contest among them who should be the greatest. And Jesus again told them that it's not like the Gentiles exercising authority. You're to be a servant. You're here to serve. He says in verse 29, And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So he's giving them a kingdom, but it's not a present kingdom in the sense like the kingdoms of this world, but rather in the future, they will get to eat and drink at his table in his kingdom and also sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Very clear picture of the future being different from the present. You just explain to them that now they're here to serve, not to reign not to take dominion. Now let's consider another one in the book of Acts, chapter 1. Jesus is just ready to ascend into heaven. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Now this was from his disciples. And just remind you of what we already looked at. Before Christ's coming, they clearly understood that there is going to be a future kingdom and it's going to be restored to the children of Israel and there'll be a time when they will have a king. He will sit on the throne of David and reign forever. So they had now come through Christ's death, his resurrection. He's about to be taken from them. And so this question is, so wilt thou at this time Restore the kingdom. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So there he gives them their mandate. He doesn't directly answer the question. He 
He doesn't deny that there's going to be a restoration of the kingdom. He simply says it's for another time, or he says it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. But here is what your mandate is. You are to go and be witnesses unto me throughout the whole earth. And he repeated that in various places during his his ministry here. So they understood it clearly that this was their mandate. And I believe we today are still living under that mandate that we are to be his witnesses unto all parts of the earth. And I know there are some even in the present day will sometimes use the term taking dominion over the earth. That, uh, that troubles me a bit. I have no problem with the concept of going out and evangelizing and having a desire that all men be saved and to go into an area, be it your local city or be it some far-off land where you desire that all be saved and you put all your zeal to try and preach the gospel and teach. And if in that concept you want to use the word dominion, okay, I'd say it may not be the best word. But what I am troubled about would be the concept that somehow we have an idea of superiority and we're going, to, we're going to come in and we're going to take this city for God. It doesn't work out too well. You know, historically, that's not what we're looking for. We're not looking to establish a visible kingdom. Yes, we are looking to establish a visible church, a body of believers that are called out, And yes, we are separated from the kingdom of this world. We should look like the people that are in God's kingdom. But it does not have, in an earthly sense, a dominion over an area or over a people. But rather we should see ourselves as servants, here to sacrifice, here to labor. We're not here to reign. Well, let's consider some other passages, and I'll just refer to them. You know, in Romans chapter 8, it says that we shall be more than conquerors through him that loved us. And just prior to that, it tells us that we, um, if we walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh, then we can cry, Abba, Father, because we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And... So then we get terminology like we're a child of the king. Amen. Praise God. And the king, he reigns and, and he's going to reign forever. And, and we are his children and we should act like princes and we should, you know, take the dominion that's given to us. And, and you'll hear that kind of terminology. Well, let me share what I think is is very clear and, and very right is for us to understand that in our conflict here, which is not after the flesh, but after the spirit, we do not war, like he says in Ephesians, after the flesh, but we war in the spirit against principalities and powers. And yes, none of those things should hinder us from being more than conquerors. And sin shall not have dominion over us. We should yield our members as instruments of righteousness. We do not have to be under the dominion of sin. And in that sense, we are victors. We are conquerors. Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. And if that's what you mean by dominion, okay. I'll I'll allow that as, as permissible perhaps. We do have dominion. We don't have to be subject... However, we are not here to take dominion over the earth. Now, I have heard some use even the, uh, the passage there in Genesis about uh, the mandate given to Adam, you know, that you're to have dominion over the earth and over the animals and over the things. And I say, okay, yes, amen. We're here to make the things of this earth uh, be fruitful and we subdue them. We use animals for our purposes and make them useful. We till the ground 
And in that sense, yes, we take dominion. We don't have to be in fear and, and we don't have to be uh, subject to all of the elements. We can build a house and be protected from the cold. We can make the wood useful to ourselves to heat our house and all those things. And yes, in that sense, like all mankind, we do take dominion. But that doesn't translate into a spiritual or into a, a what I say, a combination of spiritual, physical, in the sense that we as Christians are going to take dominion. And we're going to, uh, we go into this city and we're going to claim it for God. Beware. There are people and voices around today. There's uh, not so long ago, um, and it's still among us today, and that was the teachings of Joseph Smith who taught that soon the kingdom of God will come and there's going to be a new Zion somewhere down in Missouri. don't remember the name of the town, but that was going to be the new Zion where the saints are going to, uh, to rule and reign from that city. Somewhere in Missouri. Well, I'm sorry, it's not going to be Missouri. It's going to be Jerusalem. Don't be deceived by those who say, Lo, the kingdom of God is there. And it's not going to be some city down in Central America after the, um, after the teaching of um, Bill Gothard. He wanted to set up a city down there where righteousness is going to rule and all the subjects of the city are going to be ruled in righteousness. No, I'm sorry, that's not the kind of kingdom that God came to establish here. That is future. When Christ sits on the throne in Jerusalem, on the throne of his father David, and that kingdom is revealed, then righteousness will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But that's not how it is now. I think it was a little over 20 years ago, there were some people we knew, brethren, who got swept away in this concept that we as believers should take dominion now. And that seems to flow along with the, with the eschatological view that of preterism is the term often used with the concept that in A.D. 70 Christ came back and and so now we are just kind of in this indefinite time where the believers need to take possession of the kingdom and be involved in, be it politics or business or whatever uh, realm you're in, but we need to take the earth, we need to take it back and make it a righteous place so that eventually the whole nation will be, or the whole world will be righteous enough for Christ to actually visibly appear. And they will sometimes say that that might be 10,000 years in the future and, and just uh, contradict so many scriptures and passages that, uh, and again, don't be deceived by those things. Those kingdom concepts, though it's fine and good to talk about the kingdom, but just be aware there's a kingdom now and a kingdom future. I'd like to refer also to Revelation chapter 20, which was read this morning. That pertains to our study here where he says, Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And again, verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection on such the second death, hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, 
and shall reign with him a thousand years. That is when we rule and reign with Christ. That parallels with what Jesus told his disciples, that they will sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And just understand that term judge there is not uh, the sense that we think of as a judge who sits in a courtroom. It's a judge as one who is a presiding ruler. Remember in the days of Israel before the kings, they had judges that ruled over them. And yes, they did consider matters of uh, law and, um, and justice, but they were the rulers. And that is, I believe, the sense that Jesus was using there. They will sit on twelve thrones ruling over the twelve tribes of Israel. And here in Revelation 20, talks about uh, living and reigning with Christ a thousand years. But let's not confuse it, as some have, and think that, well, here and now, we need to take dominion. We need to you know, it's that, that's our mandate. God wants us to rule and reign. And, and we should act like we're uh, sons of the king. Well, understand, there is, there is a spiritual sense. Yes, we can rejoice that we have a king. And we can ascribe to our, uh, our king that he is king of kings and lord of lords. Now, there have been some reactions to even this concept of ruling and reigning. And I know some might think it controversial, but I like to take the scriptures for what they say here. And I know um, recently got a book uh, from Cam that Cam publishes on a commentary on Revelation. And in that commentary, it was kind of given the view here that this can't possibly mean that in some future age we will sit on thrones, literally, and, and rule and reign with Christ, but rather it means now, here, we are in his kingdom. And so, of course, we don't have a visible and physical kingdom, so what that must mean is that Christ rules and reigns in our hearts, and we, as kings rule and reign with him. It doesn't quite, I don't think, do justice to the scriptures. But rather what he's teaching us here is that there is a future time when we'll rule and reign. Now I don't disagree at all with the concept that in Christ, yes, we rule over sin. We don't have to be subject to the dominion of sin. And when we wrestle Against uh, the powers of darkness and the prince of this world, yes, we are more than conquerors through Christ. None of those things should separate us from the love of God, and, and all that is fine and good. But let's not confuse the two and think that somehow we will rule and reign now, or deny that that will be in the future. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, said that the meek shall inherit the earth. Are they inheriting the earth now? I have heard some claim that they are. I would disagree. I believe that he was specifically talking about a time in the future when we as God's people will inherit the earth. But it's not now. And we don't need to set up some city and we don't need to take dominion over the peoples and over the over the cities and over the whatever. Those terminologies are foreign to the spirit and concept of a New Testament church, a New Testament believers, ones who are here to serve. We're here to give our lives just like our master did and leave that dominion and reigning for some future time that the Father has placed in his own hands. It's not given to us, I don't think, any more than it was to the disciples to know the times and the seasons uh, in the sense that, well, yes, we, we can see, you know, this, this is when it will happen. You know, 
know that's not given to us. We are here as his servants, as the goodman of the house has gone into the far country, and he's given us the mandate to occupy till he comes. And that's what we should be busying ourselves about, is to occupy till he comes. Well, I think I will close with that.